following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My name is Matt Perez, and my name is Satchel Drakes, and this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Matt. Hey, Satchel. How's it going, man? You know, pretty well. How about you? I'm doing all right. Mm -hmm. um, it's the season. It's finally December. Star Wars came out. Mm -hmm. I've watched it about three times. I think I'm done. You think so? And um, I yeah, I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling really good about the film, but I'm feeling incredibly overwhelmed and drained about the response. It's kind of unavoidable to just get lost in the Twitter timeline, and between reviews and YouTube critique and like just everyone's kind of knee jerk responses on social media, it's just been a lot, and it's had me thinking a lot about the way we criticize. I guess art whether it's movies or games mm -hmm. we're kind of in a nice corner with a uh, a lot of over opinionated nerds and i feel like there's a lot of crossover so it's been it's been fresh on my mind well yeah i think it's like a modern occurrence of like a big thing comes out and people just explode with think pieces and whatnot and especially with this one it seems very divisive especially with something so big as star wars and what's usually like you know, Force Awakens came out, and I think everyone had, like, kind of a unified opinion for a while. It then steered towards a different one. But this one, it is crazy seeing, like, everyone put their thoughts out there of why they didn't like it, why they loved it. Uh, and it's – I think especially with this one, it's um, – people aren't sure – how they feel about it. They just know they didn't feel great or they felt very good about it. That's like, what kills me. That's yeah, what like, kills me. They're like, something feels off. And I'm like, thanks, guy. Like, but I think, yeah. <laughs> and then it, breaking that down real quick for the rest of us. Yeah. It's a matter of like, then they're like, you just see like so many, um, you know, articles, commentators, um, trying to pinpoint exactly why they feel the way they do. And it's like, there's so many voices of like, there's now like a you know a, a gigantic list of like what was wrong with it and it's like i don't know if any of those things were like the main cause maybe there's one thing because i know for me personally like i felt like oh there's something wrong with this one i'm trying to like figure it out myself but like you just go online you're like none of this makes any sense this is just a lot of noise i think and i yeah it, it is that thought of like how how useful is this to actually figure out like you know um how this movie was or what we can learn from it or like what it was trying to say there just because there's just well, so many opinions you know, you know i'm curious to know like what's what's your relationship with these reviews because in my head it almost feels like any one of these people and obviously if you have an opinion about a movie or a game or whatever that's totally fine it's totally valid your right to express it is there we live in america right but like <laughs> Any one of these people, like, they're kind of a corner away from maybe getting a title and attributing a score that could impact, like, somebody's job, depending on the publication they work for. And obviously there's qualifications that are, like, tied to that. Uh, but people get very emotional about the things that they consume. Like, 
how much credence do you lend to like internet opinion of things that you really like? Do you try to sequester yourself off and just keep it a sacred for yourself? Do you like kind of checking Rotten Tomatoes? Like what's kind of your relationship with that? Or like, you know, with games, uh, what Metacritic games and films as well. Like, Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? And breaking away for a moment to thank Amica Insurance and LifeLock for supporting the Forbes Overworld podcast. More about these sponsors later in the show. I I mean, personally, I like – I kind of already know like what I'm going to see for the year. You know, I don't necessarily need like, oh, you definitely should go see this. I kind of just know like, oh, I'm probably going to go see it. And uh, I just know – I like I usually have my own gut reaction and, you know, you talk to friends and you figure it out yourself why you felt the way you did. And I felt like that's kind of what I did. I, you know, I always – 90s I, style. Yeah. I totally avoid – like especially with Star Wars, <laughs> totally avoid reviews and everything. And um, But it's like after the fact, I want to see what everyone else said and like how it relates to what I think. And there is definitely like that frustration of like – no, I think you're wrong. I, I think it's – even if you, like, you agree that like if you had to put a number on the film and you both agree on the number, I still get like peeved of like you're giving it for the wrong reasons. I'm getting it, giving it for the right reasons. You know? like, so I, I, I just got I – got, I, got, I get tricked because I say like I'm all ascetic about it. I'm like I'm going to be a monk about this, OK? Like I'm just going to watch this. This is how I feel about it and I'm good. And then you start scrolling through the timeline and, like, you see a certain thing, you read a certain thing, and you just want to counter, mm-hmm. you know? I, you I think there is that, like, guys. I kind of keep uh, a low profile for a while and I let it, like, stew and let let me figure it out. But I definitely, like, the cycle is, like, no, get your opinion out as quickly as possible. And, yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess, like, for me, like, just seeing other people's opinions help but i know for like probably the people who like with with their jobs or like with you know how it affects like the box office i don't know if it helps that much you know uh and yeah. how how useful it is uh as, as those like first gut reactions that like we now like have an industry of like it's gonna be immediate and it's you know you're not gonna let it kind of sink in or anything like that okay so with that being said how do you sort of feel how do you feel about the fact that we're kind of in an age now where when something comes out, like admit, like let's say a game, there's sort of the press, there's enthusiast press, you know, people on YouTube, people on podcasts kind of giving their opinion. And then there's sort of individuals sharing their own word on things, which oftentimes gets elevated by both enthusiast press and then maybe like a publication like Forbes. How do you feel all that sort of plays in it? Where do you think their role is in in commentary and in i guess holding creators accountable and forwarding what we enjoy about games Mm -hmm. that's a tough question it's it's like i mean we always have like that now like the same cycle of everything like game gets super hyped up it comes out you get this press like the initial press and then you know like you said there's like this cycle it just keeps happening and like it'll build up and die down and it's just uh it's strange i think especially in games and probably like something with like Star Wars that is so like in it, like embedded in our culture. Um, those voices are very loud, and like it, it's it, it's interesting to see like how it affects uh, the content itself. Um, and I mean, every single voice, whether it's the press or the enthusiasts' uh, uh, press or the fans, just seeing it so I don't know accentuated is is, is crazy and. Um, 
I don't know how, how it all fits together because it does. It like it's one of those things where it's like it immediately dies down in the com- like the actual like how like the the public opinion changes like as you know as the time goes on as well and I know like with like say like Force Awakens that came out everyone loved it and then it changes and it's just interesting and then you look back on like the initial reactions and it's 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 a it's a weird way uh how um how how this works now and especially i think it's especially in video games because i think there is more of an interaction with the fans and there's less barriers between say disney and you know uh a development studio true true i don't know how do you feel in, in a lot of ways in a lot of ways it almost feels like studios even big game studios will kind of go out of their way to create this i mean if we're honest, video games have always had a bit of a public-facing, uh, for lack of better words, I guess pandering relationship with fans. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it's always felt like a big part of being a good company is making the fans feel like they are overtly involved in a process or that they're being heard and appreciated. And oftentimes companies, like, they, they enjoy those PR statements in a way that you might not find with a film or in a way you might not find a band sort of looking for that information. Yeah. I think another thing is, like, you know, with, like, the rise of, like, things like Reddit and everything or just really the internet in general, I, everyone is, you know, becomes, I guess, like, a critic and becomes a writer because, like, the keyboard's right in front of them and they type words, hence they are a writer, right? And, like... It's like right, <laughs> it's a weird now, yeah. yeah, it's like they're doing Barrier the act of entry of it. is very different, yeah. Yeah, and like that's you the can, thing. Like, you can be a self-proclaimed a lot of things and get paid pretty well for it. Yeah, and I'm like that's the thing like I've like I not that I'm like an authority or anything on it, but it's like I feel like I've 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 done I've had experience, right? In like a professional setting and it's like I'm afraid to, like when I write. I'm like I'm wary of like how my message would be betrayed and like uh and I want to make sure like everything is like not just train of thought like I've, I've put a lot of thought into it and i feel like um i'm not you know mishandling the information but that's that's kind of not the way things uh, work anymore i guess you know like did, did you did you feel as skittish when you were investing in your youtube channel that was kind of criticizing games yeah absolutely i uh okay. and i think i would be curious to know how you feel when i started doing uh youtube content it is that thing in your mind of like okay i'm gonna promote this alongside I don't, I don't know, like quote unquote gaming experts or something. Like you, you're like representing yourself as a critic, right? And like I tried to like make it seem po- polished and everything. And it's a thing of asking yourself: Am I actually an authority? Is what I'm saying true, or is it is what I'm saying have credence? And um, I I definitely was very skittish of like making sure like I, I spent a lot of time on the scripts themselves more so than anything else. I did so many drafts of the scripts, uh, just because I was afraid of like, well, if I say it in this way, it could be portrayed, like portrayed this way. And I don't want to put that out. And, you know, just constantly asking myself of like, uh, and, and what I am, am I saying, you know, uh, something that's very accurate or am I making something up that will, you know, hurt, uh, uh, you know how this game is viewed, or something. Even though I don't like hold yeah. that much power, I guess like collectively on YouTube, all the small creators like could. Uh, I think I think that's image. totally fair. You had more of a following on YouTube, or you do have more of a following on YouTube. Like, how do you feel about when when you create something like that? Like, 
for something like that, um, I, well, first I took a look at the landscape, and I mean, one thing that's true of YouTube and true of a lot of platforms is uh, there tends to be a great reward, a great reward uh, in cynicism and aggression mm-hmm. uh, around something. It's kind of interpreted as like, I guess, sort of like a fervent passion for the thing that you're talking about. Um, so because of that, people tend to be there tends to be a celebrated social reward in having ham fisted a ham fisted i guess flourish on things mm-hmm. so people are very aggressive and I, one thing i didn't really see much of was were people being delicate about um being perceived as this ultimate authority on things or being the ultimate authority on whether you should spend ten dollars on this or that experience mm-hmm. uh when i first went into it especially as somebody who is kind of just stepped into it from, you know, just being a designer. I used to have like prefaces in the beginnings of my videos to the, um, that were a bit apologetic to the fault, to like to a fault because people would kind of like write in comments like this is a bit too much. Like you can just go into it, share how you feel on it. I want to know what it's like. But in the beginning, I had a lot of preface just making sure that people understood that I'm not coming in like trying to be a grand authority or sort of like a an oracle of taste but rather saying hey i ha- i'm i'm coming i'm coming to this game or this whatever uh with baggage and a worldview and that's going to impact how i feel about it and this is how i feel about it and why and so it was really important for me to be that way one because i felt more comfortable sharing things with thousands of people that way but then also because uh i felt like this space could pro- not that there's anything wrong with people who do sort of play into a uh so to speak, angry video game nerd approach to to talking about things. I think that that's totally fine. It's really entertaining, and I follow a lot of those people personally, and I'm friends with a lot of those people who kind of do things in that way. But I I think that with that being said, uh, there, there there can all there can always be space for humility. One, and there can always be space for uh, people who are not only careful about how they're talking about things and and their influence, but also are thinking not necessarily about the consumer as much as they're thinking about developers intent and the creator's intent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing that I've been enjoying about games journalism in particular, both from big pu- publications and also enthusiast press is that there are a lot of people who are looking to sort of baptize their opinion in um what the developer might have been thinking or or the kind of principles that developers in general try to keep in mind, I guess like creator virtues, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that that really helps bridge a conversation between the people who want to play something really good and have a, either have a good time or have an engaged intriguing time. And the people who are investing years of their life and sometimes making sacrifices for their families and for themselves uh, to make something special. Yeah. I know when I was creating uh, content, I veered away from trying to do consumer reviews. I was like, okay, there's publications like IGN that probably can handle this better than me. Like, I'm, I don't want to be responsible for telling you how to use your money. So I veered right. more toward and throwing away the numbers, right? Like yeah, five out of five. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I veered toward, uh, away from that, and I know like. I created a video after the fact just because I wasn't confident, but um, it is a thing of like <laughs> I had a philosophy going in, like like where I was instead of it being I'm gonna because I talked about story 
uh, and I tried to do like a spark notes approach. Um, and I just had in my head when I approached a game or like really it's just how I play games it has nothing to do with like I went in there with the purpose of doing this. It just happens to be this way of like usually we separate discussions um, of story and gameplay where they're two separate things. And I was like, no, like they, they're probably like the same exact thing. Like it's all about pacing. Really? I say that so often. That's so stupid, but it's all about pacing. And like <laughs> the mechanics themselves tell us this all the time, but just add one more yeah. time. All right, let's go. It makes so much sense. Um, but no, like looking at games in that way and that's how I approached it. And it, and it felt more like, you know, that's how I view it. And that's how we're, I'll discuss it. And, uh, and I think that, that it actually did pretty well with like the the hardcore gamers, even though I was talking about story, like which is not always like the they're not always the kindest with uh, in regards to that. But I think because I approached it in this like new like this different way that like incorporated mechanics and thought about that in regards to the story, like it did all right, you know. Um, so that was like how mm-hmm. I did it. It was like this is my unique perspective. You could take it or leave it, but it's like definitely all me kind of thing so there's that that's fair i'm mm-hmm. with you on that but it is i i think I, there's like the i mean there's a the consumer aspect but there's also like understanding the designer impact and understanding like what even went into the game and maybe i don't know like with maybe the proliferation with all like of critics and whatnot like no um, yes you're you're totally right i mean there were a bunch of i mean so i noticed some of the videos that you were making i thought that those were really cool um there's guys like aaron signal and um like extra credits who like i think like i i found i must have been like late to the party um but over time like as i started making more videos I remember, like, on my timeline, like, I would hear, like, oh, like, hey, like, thanks for uploading this. This reminds me of extra credits. Um, I found this channel that talks about – I mean, really, it's kind of like a family of channels, right, where they cover video games but also politics, a bunch of other things. Um, They would take these deep dives and they would kind of hit on these things that we're talking about where they would marry developer intent in a really, like, personal way and, um, you know, what what they feel – would make for a good game mechanics wise, which is what people are sort of trained to prioritize, uh, but also like artistry, also like craft, even though we kind of over romanticize these words, like in the very sense of the word, like what goes what goes into making into into investing and and character development, all these different things around story. Um, they did an amazing job at at unpacking uh, a lot of concepts around development around uh, the, the industry around games and the scene around responding to them. And I just became like an amazing, like I I just became a big fan of the kind of work that we're, that, that, that they were doing. And I'm so psyched that we'll be able to actually have somebody on to, to talk with from, from their so like smart team they're incredibly smart team would be able to sort of talk about like how they feel about this world around criticism and uh this world around reviewing the games that we enjoy and don't really enjoy that much yeah it's pretty perfect because we're going to talk to james port now from extra credits and he's both a writer on it but he's also a game designer which i think gives a different little perspective of like seeing you know he's part of that world where you're going through like crunch and you know 
budgetary concerns and how you're creating the entirety of this game experience. But on the other end, you know, the crit- the critical end of like how we talk about games and you know some of the misunderstandings we sometimes have. So that's really exciting that we're going to talk to them. But first, a quick break. The support for Overworld comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. One more time, that's meetamica.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amica Insurance. Well, uh, James, thanks for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Great. So I guess like a very general question is I was just interested in how we talk about games and uh, what your thoughts are on the current landscape, uh, on how we discuss games and what would you like to see change possibly? Well, to me, uh, for many, many years, decades even, all we did was review, um, which meant we were actually just discussing the content of the game rather than its meaning or its craft or its artistry. Uh, and I think we're starting to get better at that, right? Um, there's a lot of things from what we do to critical distance to a dozen other uh, errant signal places out there where you can find a little bit more in-depth commentary. Uh, because at this point, we need to start thinking of this like any other medium, right? We have to think of it in the same way that we think of film or television or books. And in all those mediums, while review is useful, uh, analysis is really what sort of pushes the boundaries of what people can do and helps the medium evolve. And that's, I think, the next big step for how we talk about games. Mm -hmm. And you feel like that comes through you know, these type of analysis of kind of changing the conversation because it's so like embedded that we talk about it of like these separate entities of like visuals and what's fun and things, but like actually getting a little bit deeper. Um, and that's how you kind of change like the audience perception. Would that be like an accurate assessment? Yes. And actually you hit on a word that I think we should also talk about, which is this idea of fun. Um, For the same several decades, we've always talked about games as fun, uh, which is sort of how we talk about uh, a pastime for children, right? Um, And unfortunately, this is just not how we need to talk about a medium, right? We don't necessarily talk about films as fun or books is fun. Schindler's List is not a fun movie. It's an engaging movie, but not a fun movie. Uh, And I think we also need to start, I know it's a semantic difference, but I think it's an important one, referring to games as engaging, because you can't talk about tragedy as fun. And if the only vocabulary you have is fun, then you can never make a tragic game because a tragic game isn't fun. But if you talk about games as engaging, it opens up the rest of human experience, right? That all other mediums focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I guess it's a way of like you're uh, just connecting with it instead of it being this sort of amorphous word. I know like as like when you're writing, it, you avoid words like solid because solid really doesn't mean anything. So. It's kind of a nothing word, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like using interesting. It's very neutral. It doesn't really sway in any direction. It's just kind of moves the conversation along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's like saying yeah. something is cool, but that 
doesn't really give us any insight into it, right? Um, and here, I think it's even more limiting because uh, fun does have some specific connotation to it, right? It is, there are things that you would call not fun um, that are still reasons that we read books or watch movies or go to plays. Mm-hmm. I know, like, yeah. even something, I guess a lot of times fun is... Uh, uh, connected to mechanics mm-hmm. but like even like the most like say like league of legends like that's a, a mechanically intensive game it is not fun it <laughs> is grueling you know and it's but it's there's something to it it's not i, I think that that sometimes gets um mixed up a little bit too um, right but so i know um actually like i guess something that might be interesting is i know warren specter he had written a story a bit ago um comparing gaming criticism to say like how the New York Times handles films and the way he like characterized it was like um, he wanted to see uh, more criticism that wasn't about if the content was good or bad. It could take a totally neutral approach to it and just talk about, you know, what kind of subject matter it hits or, you know, talking about a story and just analyzing it in the same way we would analyze the great Gatsby in English class. Uh, do you see that philosophy? Like, do you agree with that? And do you see that like philosophy being adapted recently? Uh, yes, I do agree with it. I would say I would make the caveat that review is still useful, right? There's a reason that we still give star ratings to stuff in most major uh, movie sections of newspapers, but that's not all we do. And I completely agree with Warren Spector that we need to move forward into a space where there's also a lot of commentary that is not about its a game's merits in any specific area, be they graphics, gameplay, what have you, um, but rather are talking about what each of those elements mean, what the uh, work itself means, and what we can get from it. There are some people who are known for essentially looking at video games as consumer electronics and telling you what you're going to get the bang for your buck for. Cause there's this kind of this constant voice I notice online, especially on Twitter around like, yeah, well we want to make sure that we're spending the money and the money is equating to the play time or whatever. Everyone kind of describes the gravitas that does it for them in like a different way. Uh, I don't know. Jamin Warren, he, he kind of, he wrote a thing piece not too long ago about, um, reviewing, ga- reviewing games to be more accurate to like, uh, writing about food in a kind of way where um, you're incorporating your experience and you're incorporating sort of like your worldview into what you're writing about rather than mechanics, good mechanics, bad it's 16 hours. So it's worth $7, you know, do you find one cheapens the medium or do you find they kind of both have their place? Uh, before I tackle that, I think we have to talk about this idea of playtime uh, equaling quality, Right. Um, I think this is a problem and I think this is something that we in the AAA industry sort of have sold the consumer uh, because AAA games just tend to have slightly longer play lengths than a lot of uh, independent titles. But there are plenty of movies that I've spent $10 on, $15 on to go see and would be better if they were shorter, right? I would have enjoyed and gotten more out of that $15 if they were shorter. Uh, that's true of a ton of games. And there are plenty of $60 games that have had 40 hours worth of content that are substantially worse and have stuck with me far less 
uh, than games that are $10 but only two hours long, right? And so I think as consumers, we have to get past that, especially when there's now um, a lot of demand on the consumer side. I see Steam reviews all the time with like 400 hours that people put into something and them saying that, uh, and their negative reviews saying that, that this just doesn't have enough stuff or, um, that, that there's something that they didn't like about it. But really when you look at games, even fairly short games at this point are dollar for dollar really solid entertainment when you compare to going to a movie right a movie is about 750 an hour even games that people can play about being too short are rarely uh more expensive than that um but getting back to your right. earlier point i believe and this is just my own personal philosophy that you can't really separate worldview that even when people are just talking about numbers and trying to assign a quote-unquote objective score to a game that there's a lot of subjectivity there and a lot of that subjectivity comes from their worldview so i would rather have a uh, have more insight into the writer's worldview and perspective as it makes me better understand the review that they're giving and thus the value of the review to me because my worldview may be different um and so i think that has high value I often find, I mean, and maybe it's just me, you know, my kind of narrow corner of the internet, but oftentimes I find reviews will almost incorporate like a generous chunk of the score that they assign to a game that they're reviewing based on the replayability. And I just don't find that kind of analog in other mediums where like there are lots of compelling films that I'll watch, like I'll watch Dunkirk and it's like, yeah, it would be nice to watch this again, but I don't see how this plays into the entirety of an assessment of whether it was done well or not. And I just, it, I, I've kind of had a similar experience with just how much attention replayability gets. Well, I think that replayability especially is one that is pushed by the hardest of the hardcore. We have this thing in games where a very vocal minority uh, really wags the dog, right? Like we've got this very vocal minority that, uh, developers are worried about that reviewers know are going to spam their comments um, and so s- sort of skew their efforts towards this very vocal minority which is not the best for the gaming populace as a whole uh, in this particular case it's funny we actually laugh about it all the time as developers because um, I've worked on plenty of games and in all these games, we have metrics. And one of the metrics that we have always is, and you can kind of see it in a lot of games because there's usually a trophy for it that many things will tell you how what percentage of players got. But we always have a metric for how many people actually completed the game, right? right. And it's very often under 20% of the audience. It's almost universally under 20% of the audience that actually like completes a title. And yet we're that focused on replayability, <laughs> which means, which says to me that it's being pushed by of like, course. a very small <laughs> subset. Of, yeah. That is a crazy phenomenon of like, I think I'm using that. Yeah. <laughs> That's good data. I mean, and it's super easy, right? If you want to just demonstrate it to people, to have people fire up their PlayStation and look at it, it'll tell you literally the percent of people who get mm-hmm. the end game trophy. Or even on Steam, where like everyone has like a gazillion games, and like I've installed games and started them up, and like maybe five minutes, I'm like, huh, I don't know. Like, and, I, and it's not even like I don't want to complete it. It just 
I don't know. It, that's it, it is a weird phenomenon of games not getting completed, where it's like the idea of like leaving the theater um, <laughs> is like mm-hmm. you would rarely do that. And when people say they've done it, it's like a story. But like in games, like no, like probably the majority of the people don't finish. You know, even a short game. You know. Um, well, I don't know if you guys remember the old um, game Fahrenheit, which I think was yeah. Indigo Prophecy here in the States. Uh, but if you ever read about, there's a lot of people who joke about how the end of that just totally goes off the rails. But if you read his explanation, it was because they focused entirely on the first half of the game um, because like the lead designer literally said, we expect nobody to get to the end. So we spent all of our time on the beginning of the game and that sold the game. And then oh. we had to put in an ending. Right. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that's the degree to which it is common in games for people not to get to the end, which is unfortunate because it does mean we spend less time sticking the landing and a lot of great games just fumble at the end and are less memorable because of it. But you're right. We don't walk out of theaters like we do games. I think it's just because mm-hmm. of the length of the That's experience. Because so, I, I, you do notice like a lot of games have trouble with the finale. I know like Bioshock comes to mind for me, but like, do you think that's a common sentiment of like, um, either like just finishing a game is difficult, like hitting the finale is difficult, or is it a thing of like, no, we're going to focus on the the um, first half kind of thing. So uh, from a sort of development side, one, your demo is usually somewhere earlier in whether it's your pitch demo or your sort of live demo somewhere earlier and you're working – a lot of the polish goes around that section because in order to make the rest of the game, that better be good. Um, and then the other side of it to me is – as we're going further and further through the creation of a game, um, and as you get closer and closer to your ship date, like, yeah, basically every product I've ever worked on has had to start making cuts, right? And had to start cutting things during development, not before development, not at the planning phase, but like there were features that were planned out that we were going to do that we didn't do because it became clear later in cycle that it was going to be impossible. And it's difficult to uh, create a truly spectacular ending if the pieces that ending relies on end up getting removed halfway through, right? Like if you're, if what you're building towards, you find out you literally can't make all of, which is sort of on us as game developers because we do have to get better at planning and project management, but I think that's part of the issue as that's, well. I actually wanted to bring that up because you have that unique perspective of – so you create content on YouTube as a writer for extra credits, but you also design games. And I feel like I've seen like recently um, uh, designers kind of saying like you know, there's a lot of these – uh, like YouTube SES and, and like me and Satchel have done um, uh, videos uh, analysis on games as well but it's like a thing of like there's maybe you know people being touted or like viewed a lot and maybe they don't understand the design process and uh, I don't know like do you notice that often where like a lot of you, you see just like mm-hmm. bad analysis of like how design goes and like maybe people just min- misunderstand the how how like substantial cuts are like how the design phase goes 
Oh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, from the consumer perspective, it's funny because way back when we started Extra Credits, part of the idea was to hopefully give consumers a little bit more insight into uh, the development process because while I think consumer feedback is essential, right? Like I think we actually do need to listen to our consumers, but in order to make that feedback as valuable as possible, the consumers need to understand more of what they're discussing because all the time, you're right, I see comments even from people who are uh, very highly viewed that do at times seem ludicrous to me. I mean, there's all these times where people will say, oh, they should have thrown in multiplayer. It would only take a day. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Um, and I love so that. I do, I do see that a lot. Um, and I mean, it was even with the recent EA loot box thing, EA implemented it stupidly and terribly but I think that most consumers fail to realize the fundamental reason that we're having loot boxes in $60 games, which is it's been about 10 years since we've increased the price of games. Not only has the price of making games gone up, but by inflation alone, uh, the dollar is worth about 25% less than it was when we started making $60 games. Games at a minimum should be $75 per game at retail for big AAA games. And... Uh, they're not right, um, and so I uh, I think that when we're having all these discussions, it would be highly valuable if the industry was more open and gave the consumer more of a perspective, because otherwise you do get backlash that is only semi-informed and asking for for the impossible in some cases. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Doing a lot of holiday shopping from your mobile device? Retailers expect 54% of holiday shoppers to visit their sites from mobile devices. Scammers see this as an opportunity to steal your credit card information and other personal data by distributing phony retail apps. Be cautious and only download apps from reputable app stores and read the reviews for any complaints about malware. One in four people have experienced identity theft. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. Thieves could sell your information on the dark web or get an online payday loan in your name. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats. If you have a problem, U.S.-based restoration specialists will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. LifeLock can uncover threats that you might miss. Join now and get 10% off with promo code Forbes. Call 1-800-LIFELOCK or go to LifeLock.com and use promo code Forbes. That's Forbes to save 10% now. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Did you know there were over 1 million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fine hunting for your brilliant brunch Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! I know um, Max Landis, who's a very vocal screenwriter, um, he was saying like so many reviewers and whatnot um, always criticize the screenwriter and the screenplay for things that ended up being like added post that screenplay being written by the, the writer and him moving on. And I know like his uh, uh, Bright, he, he worked on Bright, which is the new Will Smith movie coming out for Netflix. And I saw like comments um, coming out about like a recent trailer, and it was like there was like a weird line in it, and someone had like 
you know, tagged his username um, to explain it. And he's like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't write that. It just ended up in there after so many drafts and so many other people got a hold of it. And uh, I think that's like in the film industry, at least that's like a misunderstanding of like how much of that first draft from the original screenwriter is stays intact until the very end, you know? And I think that's probably similar for games. Uh, I know um, one of the more like interesting, um, and like really enlightening things was seeing um, all the news come out for Broken Age, Double Fine's Kickstarter game, uh, and then watching the documentary where mm-hmm. they show everything and just comparing that. And it was like, it, that was like mind opening for me. Uh, I don't know if you uh, watched it or not. Yeah, and I think that we need to have more of that. The, the thing that was amazingly cool about that to me was how open they were in an industry that is super full of secrecy. And I get, I get some of the NDAs, I get some of the trade secret stuff, but I'm barely able to talk directly about any of my work because of how much I get NDA'd. Um, and some of it, I mean, as a consultant, one of the main things I do is go solve, solve problems, right? I go and people are reinventing the wheel because we're, we don't communicate and answering problems that the audience has because the audience doesn't understand uh, either what's being gone for or the difficulty in delivering on small things they're asking for. Um, and so I do. I, th- I think that documentary was great. And I think we need more just sort of openness in this in this industry. I mean, I think that we have more trade secrets and are more hush hush about things than the film industry, certainly than novels or comic books. And so it was kind of crazy too, because I feel like they were being, I'm sure they like, I think for like psychonauts too, they're like kind of closing the door and only letting out a little bit of information here and there. But I was like, they were being extremely open and they were getting criticized for it. But then I think a lot of designers came out and went like, this is totally normal. Like things go over budget and they have to delay and like, you know, you have to act, um, you know, uh, at the see your pants kind of thing. And it was just like really interesting to see, like they kind of got burned for being open, but it's like so useful to just like get that inside knowledge of like, this is how it goes usually. Right. And they can hold journalists accountable. Like, it's nice having a little bit of that insight for sure. But yeah, I get, I get the complexities around it too. Well, it's tough. But I mean, they were burned for being open yeah. because nobody else was open, right? If the consumer understood that that was regular, standard, like how this business is done, nobody would be complaining about it, right? But they only got burnt because they're, they're showing the truth while the rest, while a lot of the rest of the industry is trying to, uh, pretend as if game development is some magic perfect process. And I think the rest of the industry, we all get burnt by, by trying to maintain. Yeah, I know that like notion. in um, the journalism sphere, um, you know, new things like, I, I feel like sometimes, like, especially now um, everything's a bit more open and um, people are like surprised that um, how the industry works. But then, I think there's now a new um, push for journalists to basically show their work where before it's like hide the strings and just like, but now it's like, no, we contacted this person and we got these documents and we show your receipts. Yeah. Basically show your receipts. And that like shows like what went into this and like how we found the information that we found. And uh, 
I think that might, yeah, yeah, like that's, I think for at least in the journalism sphere, like how there we are approaching that issue, you know? And, and I mean, it is an, it is an interesting time. I think there's a whole discussion uh, we could have going down that direction about sort of this epistemological crisis that we are having on like as as a nation if not a planet on yeah. what is true and um but uh i mean you're right it is even happening in games and there is i think from the development side value because with extra credit saying mia culpa has been so useful because the audience is like okay you told us what's going on like yes you're missing this week of show and we want you to have this show and we wanted to watch it this week and we're bummed that it's not there but because you told us like look our artist is sick and we couldn't do it um everybody was like okay right uh and i think we'd get to turn out better products and games if we were a little bit more open um but unfortunately to be blunt, we are afraid of the audience. Of like their reactions to uh, any like move you make. Right. I mean, it's weird because simultaneously uh, the AAA industry at times, not every company by any means, there's plenty of companies that are really great, but at times treats the audience like rubes and yet at the same time are terrified of audience reaction, um, especially with all the stuff like crowdsourced reviewing on Steam, right, where you can go get a brigade together and review bomb something. Um, we've seen developers change their the endings of their games. We've seen major shifts on uh, how games are sold. We've seen changes in DLC plans um, due to audience outcry. And we should be listening to the audience, but we shouldn't let the audience dictate the creation of something that they fundamentally don't understand the creation of. And as artists, we shouldn't let the audience dictate um, the art we create, because if so, we'll get a homogenized art. And in fact, the audience will in the end get less of what yeah. they want. Do you think that's because I, I feel like... Um gaming is unique where it's like this like multi-billion dollar industry but like unlike the film industry it feels like i mean that's i'm painting in broad strokes but um i just know like league of legends is like the biggest game in the world right and like their developers are on reddit constantly mm -hmm. talking to the audience so there's like that real they're constantly connecting directly with um the that consumer. is a crazy premise when you try to compare it to other mediums and nobody else is doing that exactly it's like that's like you know that's i know jk rowling's on twitter but you know like bands aren't like so like what like what tracks did you like on our last album like did you like that lick okay cool like there's no there's none of that right um and it's interesting because we have the other side of it as well whereas um the major players in most other media do go on sort of media junkets and tours um, where while they don't get to talk directly to the audience, they the audience gets to hear a lot more from them because they're all over uh, sort of traditional major media. Um, and here we don't have that. And so while 
while I think there is something amazingly cool about the fact that our games are interactive and so our like time with our audience should be too. Uh, I also think that we can't then take that and say, because I have to go talk to these fans, I can't make a decision as a developer that the fans won't like that either I need to make for the company or much more importantly, that's going to make better art, right? There's plenty of times where if you let fans decide, um, you wouldn't have major characters killed off. And yet, uh, like, like by fan vote at the time, Obi-Wan probably wouldn't die, right? And yet that would destroy that film. Um, and there's all these times where we have to make those decisions where the art and the impact is actually better even if the visceral gut reaction to the idea is something that a fan might not like because it negatively impacts within the context of the world a character that they like or a storyline that they like or um, or even changes a mechanic they like, right? All the time we have to balance our games and every time you do a balance patch, even though Afterwards, you can see the metrics and you know retention went up, you know playtime went up, you know you know 100% that it was a, a patch that was beneficial to the audience and made more people happy. You will get a huge horde of people who will spam you and flame you and uh, say very unpleasant things about you because you nerfed their favorite character, right? League of Legends is a great example of this. Uh, and... That's why we can't, I mean, if we operated solely by that fan input and when we're afraid of the fans, that happens more and more, uh, we wouldn't do things like nerf characters making the game better for more people because less people come online and say that was awesome because they noticed a 5% increase in like their enjoyability of play than the people who are like, oh, you took away my way to dominate, um, so I'm going to go flame you. I can totally see that. And it's all, it feels like, I mean, you even see it in social networks, you know, like sometimes like, I mean, you've seen it like last year with Twitter, like across Facebook, like their UX will get better. They will hire better people, like especially in their developmental years, like they will hire better people to instill better ideas and people will enjoy them and utilize them over time. But there's always like this pushback, there's complaints and there's memes and there's jokes and there's parodies and all this stuff. And there's just this whole hubbub around change constantly and sometimes it's not even about like bad decisions it's just the fact that the decision was made it's kind of strange right and i think that's it's important that we have the freedom to make that change and it gets it's harder you add inertia by having all that pushback so i just wanted to ask um like one more question uh did you see the blog post from uh hopefully i'm not mispronouncing this uh natalia Lawhead. Um, tell me about this blog post. Uh, it was about this game called Everything is Going to Be Okay. And she talked about bringing it to Day of the Devs and how she was like, I, I don't want to mischaracterize what she said, but I guess like frustrated with um, what was said about her game from, you know, people just coming in from fans. And she theorized it came because, you know, you look at, say, like a big Let's Play or something and they say like they talk in a certain vernacular a certain way and uh that like kind of dictates how someone may approach a game like oh this is weird i'm just gonna comment 
how it's weird a lot and uh, not like really take it in. Um, I don't know how you, I, I don't know if you read that, but I don't know if you how, how you feel about that. Like, do you have thoughts on that? Um, on this idea that um, I guess the quote unquote like high influencers sometimes really dictate Ooh, based well, on like when when YouTubers create culture of a response to a particular title yeah where it's like a canned response and it's just like that's right. because yeah. you know may- I mean, maybe it's like even- has that sonic 06 has that where mm-hmm. like you're supposed to react a certain way yeah yeah i don't know if you have thoughts on that well i mean i think there's two sides to it um i think that it is unfortunate that right now um we have a lot of people who are going for the cheap shot and rather than looking at great work being like uh, – it's like the bully making fun of the kid on the playground because they look funny, right? Um, and they're doing it to be popular by putting someone else down and that kind of sucks. Um, and that's not something that we should be doing yet. It's the easiest way to go and a lot of times, especially on YouTube, things default to the easiest. Uh, that said, I do believe – on the flip side, it is on us as content creators examining this medium to create an additional culture of discussion and dialogue where we analyze these things in an engaging way. uh, So that way we create another form of culture, a culture where people want to get the most out of things and want to explore ideas. And so I think that yes, Right now, it's a it's a big issue, but it's also within our power to to solve and help change how we just look at and discuss games. Okay, well, James, this is like really interesting, and I'm really glad uh, we got to talk to you. Yeah, thanks Um, so much for sharing your mind on this. It's been really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a blast. I'm sorry that I'm exhausted and so rambling a little bit, but no, uh, no you're yeah, fine. We're sorry that we're draining your precious energy. We hope you recover well. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Was there anything you'd like to uh, promote or anything like that? Uh, no, I mean, if you want to, I would love for people to know about the fact that we are trying to do a little bit more in-depth video game discussion on extra credits, and that if people are interested, uh, we've started taking all the things that we learned from making games and making films to create uh, – to teach history in a way that's engaging. Um, and at the time, people said you couldn't do that on a gaming channel on YouTube, and I think – one of the things I love is that people have shown that that's wrong, that people don't just want the lowest common denominator. They want more. Um, and finally, that we're streaming. Uh, we've just started doing stuff on Twitch, but what, one of the things we're doing on Twitch is we're doing book club. We're doing an analysis of science fiction every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Uh, we come on Twitch live and sort of discuss some of these works in the way that you were talking about as if they were the same as great literature or great art. And, um, and where everyone has said that Twitch chat is toxic rather than just accept that let's make a place where we can have dialogue on the internet. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. And any of that that you want to promote, that'd be awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thank you so much, James. Yeah, it was great. Anytime you guys want me on, um, I am, I would be happy to. (laughs) Right on. Glad you dug it. 
That's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast one. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Two thousand seventeen was a great year for us here at Podcast One, and we hope it was a great year for you. We launched new shows with Caitlin Bristow, Jim Harbaugh, Dick Enberg, and Randy Jackson. We've had some amazing guests stop by some of our shows, like Brian Cranston on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, Julia Louis Dreyfus on All of the Above with Norman Lear, and Jason Bateman on Spike's Car Radio with Spike Ferriston. We are looking forward to a bright twenty eighteen with new shows coming online, like MySpace Tom Anderson, and we are welcoming back Dennis Miller to the podcast scene. This is Heather Dubrow. Happy holidays. I'm Caitlin Bristow, and I want to wish you happy holidays. Hey, guys, it's Kelsey Knight from the Lady Gang. Happy holidays. We'll see you in the new year. From all of us here at Podcast One, we want to wish you a very happy holiday and a happy new year. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.